Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Crossover episode 2, part 2, The Fall of the Borgias with Assassinations Podcast. The episode you're about to listen to is the second part of the crossover, the collaboration with Assassinations Podcast on the notorious Borgia family. In the previous episode, I spoke about the rise of the family and Neil Cooper from Assassinations Podcast focused on Cesare Borgia. This time, Neil is going to first of all tell us about Lucrezia Borgia and then I will trace the downfall of the family. I hope you enjoy the show. Dusk settles upon the eternal city of Rome. High above the dark streets, candlelight glows from the windows of the Vatican Palace, the residence of Pope Alexander VI, also known as Rodrigo Borgia. Shrieks of laughter escape from his private chambers to echo across the Roman rooftops. At one side of the palace, a door opens onto an alleyway. There, the Pope's Master of Ceremonies ushers in fifty finely dressed ladies of the night, the best that Rome has to offer. They are hurried inside, their silks and velvets rustling against the cold stone walls as they climb the stairs. All of them anticipate rich rewards for servicing the infamous appetites of His Holiness the Pope. However, the women are also trepidatious, for there are rumours that the orgies that take place within the private apartments of Alexander and his Borgia clan can descend to the most sordid depths. When the last of the fifty courtesans has crossed the threshold, the master of ceremonies closes and bolts the door. The scent of expensive perfumes lingers in their wake, incongruous upon the fetid air of the dank and trash-strewn alleyway. The women enter a great room, richly hung with tapestries and artworks. Servants carry ornate silver pitchers, pouring fine wines into the golden cups of the assembled guests, men and women of the first rank. Tables are laid, heaving with meats, fruits, pastries and strange delicacies, and also chestnuts, great gleaming heaps of chestnuts piled everywhere. This seems strange to the courtesans, for the humble chestnut is a staple food of the poor. Yet here they take pride of place at a sumptuous feast for the fabulously wealthy. But, as the Master of Ceremonies explains, the chestnuts are there for a very special reason. At the top table, in front of a roaring fire, sits the Pope. By his side are his handsome son, Cesare, and his lovely daughter, Lucrezia. The assorted cardinals and other high officials with their wives, or more likely, mistresses, 
take their seats at long tables that run parallel down the length of the room, creating a space in the middle in which a very strange ballet will soon be performed. Cesare has arranged this banquet in honour of his father, and it was he who ordered the fifty courtesans to provide the evening's entertainment. The hired women mix with the guests, teasing and tousling the princes of the church and the great men of state that gorge themselves upon the rich offerings of the Vatican's larder. After dinner, slaves march in and lower all the chandeliers to the middle of the floor. The candles are extinguished, one by one, until only a few flickering flames remain to cast an unholy glow upon the scene. The stage is set. With a signal from the master of ceremonies, the courtesans remove their fine garments and file into the middle of the room to position themselves between the chandeliers. In the half-light, they giggle nervously as the eyes of Rome's elite devour them. Backlit from the glowing fireplace, the Pope claps his hands. At this signal, slaves strew chestnuts across the floor and the courtesans fall to their knees. Hundreds more rain down upon them until the floor is a sea of chestnuts in which the women writhe, weaving between the chandeliers, the sparse candlelight casting weird shadows as they move. The guests shout and cheer and laugh as the women desperately grab handfuls of chestnuts which fall from their naked arms as quickly as they are gathered. Wagers are placed. Who will be the one to gather the most? With heaping handfuls, the courtesans dash to the top table to present their harvests to the Pope. He and his two children count the chestnuts. To those who have picked up the most, prizes are given. Tunics of silk, shoes, hats and other items as rewards for such fine sport. And after this pretty game is done, (laughs) well... You know how these things go, as they say, when in Rome. This account of the Banquet of the Chestnuts, with just a little artistic license provided by me, comes to us from the diary of a man named Johann Burchard, who served as the Master of Ceremonies to Pope Alexander VI. Burchard actually served in this role for several popes, before and after Alexander, so we can assume he saw some crazy stuff during his tenure as head party planner at the Vatican. The jury is still out as to whether or not this account of the Banquet of the Chestnuts is true. The story was more or less confirmed by a Florentine ambassador to the Vatican, but some more recent historians have cast doubt on the diary entry, suggesting that it was either an exaggeration by Burchard because he disliked the Borgias, or that the account was fraudulently added into his diary later by someone else who wanted to add a salacious detail in order to malign the Borgias, depicting them as hopelessly decadent and morally corrupt. The Borgia family was, without question, ruthless when it came to their pursuit of wealth and power. 
and I think it's fair to say they also knew how to party. Pope Alexander had several mistresses, though he seems to have treated them all quite well, and he clearly had a taste for beautiful and rather young women. Though we don't need to believe all the scandalous rumours, I think it's also fair to say that Alexander probably did enjoy the pleasures of the flesh. I mean, who doesn't? It was inevitable then that his daughter, Lucrezia, would be tarred with the same historical brush as her clan. The enemies of the Borgias portrayed the family as monsters, so how could she hope to escape that blackguarding? Being a woman, Lucrezia faced the double burden of guilt. By association with her truly scheming male relatives, and on top of that, the insinuation that while her father and brother were debauched, she was something even worse. A whore. To make matters worse in that regard, Lucrezia was a famed beauty, described by contemporaries as having blonde hair that fell past her knees, a clear complexion, hazel eyes that changed colour, with a slender neck and a full high bosom. She was said to possess a natural grace that made her appear to walk on air, and she was accomplished in the manners of courtly life. Ordinarily, these would all be considered admirable assets for a Renaissance noblewoman. But in the brackish waters in which history and propaganda commingle, Lucrezia's beauty came to be seen as nothing more than a lure used to trap men to their doom. The presence of this beautiful young woman in the Vatican offended the sensibilities of the clergy, or at least they could claim to be scandalised by the prominent role that Lucrezia was given within the papal household. One writer at the time noted with indignation that Lucrezia and her ladies-in-waiting were even permitted into St. Peter's Basilica. The shock! On top of all that, Lucrezia also had brains. Her father had arranged for her to receive a better education than most women of her class. As well as studying ladylike subjects, such as language and music, in addition to religious instruction, of course, she also received lessons in the humanities, the critical study of philosophy, history, and politics. The church at this time thought that the humanities were a bit iffy. It was still a radical idea to consider human society out with the framework of religious dogma, and this was doubly so when we're talking about the education of women, where the general rule was to focus on the godly qualities of obedience and piety. And Lucrezia put her smarts to good use, assisting her father in the running of the Vatican, something else that offended the profoundly misogynistic clergy and added fuel to the fire of those who claimed that the Borgias were profaning the sanctity of the papacy. Thus Lucrezia became a latter-day Eve, a fallen creature bounden to sin, offering poisoned fruit to unsuspecting men all around her. She was blamed for all the treachery and murder that accompanied the Borgia's dynastic designs. It was even rumoured that she wore a hollow ring 
the better to tip a dose of poison into the drink of some unsuspecting man who got in the way of their mad quest for power. And her reputation only got worse as the years rolled on. History can be cruel, not least to women who defy expectations. Victor Hugo, author of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, did much to popularise this negative image with his 1833 play Lucrezia Borgia, in which he depicts a near-crazed woman forever pondering fresh methods to dispose of her lovers and her rivals, by hanging, strangling, or even with a poisoned communion wafer. The sins of the father, and in this case the brother, Cesare too, were passed down to Lucrezia. Her denigrators, in her own lifetime and in the centuries that followed, have apportioned to her a full measure of blame for all the twists and turns of Borgia politics, even though, as we shall see, she was often a victim of circumstance, trying to do her best in a brutal world. So, let's try to wipe away the smear job, and instead, let us ask who was the real Lucrezia Borgia, the real person, not the femme fatale. In a striking portrait by the artist Battista Dossi, we see Lucrezia as a young woman. She is beautiful, but her features seem tense and her stare is resolute. She watches you, at once insouciant and yet it's as if she has measured you up within a split second. She is graceful, though with an underlying toughness. She is fresh-faced, but we can tell that this is someone who has seen enough of life to know what's what. In short, Dossi's portrait tells us that Lucrezia Borgia is the sort of woman who is lovely, who is smart, and with whom you'd better not mess. But is it the face of a cold-hearted assassin? From the moment of her birth, like all high-born girls of this era, she was assigned one main purpose in life, to marry well in the interests of her family. In the year 1491, at the tender age of just eleven, Lucrezia was betrothed to not one, but two different Spanish nobles. The first arrangement, drawn up by Cardinal Borgia, was with a nobleman from the Kingdom of Valencia. However, just two months later, the cardinal changed his mind. He decided that it would be more favourable to the Borgia family interest if young Lucrezia were to marry a man named Don Gaspar Aversa, an aristocrat in the service of the royal family of Aragon, who were the rulers of the Kingdom of Naples in southern Italy. When Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia became Pope Alexander VI in 1492, the family stock rose enormously. Now, as the daughter of a Pope, Lucrezia had a considerably higher value on the marriage market. In addition, Alexander now shifted his alliance from the Aragonese to the powerful Italian Sforza family. So, her engagement to Gaspar was broken off 
and Lucrezia was instead promised in marriage to a man named Giovanni Sforza. Giovanni was also an illegitimate child, but he had inherited his father's titles. He was aged 27 when he married Lucrezia, then aged 13, in a ceremony in Rome in 1493. Marriage was an essential tool of diplomacy and dynastic advancement in the Renaissance, as it had long been before and as it would be for a long time thereafter. It might seem to our modern sensibilities rather cold, calculating and callous to barter one's daughter for the sake of political advantage. And doubly so when that daughter is merely a child. But to Rodrigo Borgia and all those around him, such matrimonial arrangements were the norm. The idea of marriage as a love match between two consenting adults was, quite simply, an alien concept to the pre-modern mindset, at least at the elite level. If it was love you were after, then that was what lovers were for. No, the institution of marriage was a serious business, in which love was, at best, an added and unexpected bonus. And we must remember that it would have been shocking and unacceptable, even in the cruel world of Renaissance scheming, for a 13-year-old girl to be properly married, that is to say, to have a consummated marriage. Rather, such unions between children, or in this case between a child and a grown man, were not expected to be fulfilled until both partners were of age. Conveniently for Pope Alexander, If Lucrezia's marriage was not consummated, then it could be annulled. This proved to be quite a handy get-out-of-jail-free card, as we shall see. The shifting fortunes of the many sides involved in the Italian wars at this time meant that family alliances needed to be fluid. When the Pope came to be at odds with the King of France, his alliance with the Sforzas unravelled because the Sforzas were allied with the French. Because of this, the Pope wanted to end the marriage between Lucrezia and Giovanni. Instead, Alexander once again needed to strengthen the bond between his papacy and the royal house of Aragon, which, as I mentioned, ruled the Kingdom of Naples. Divorce, as we know, wasn't an option, so it was necessary to prove that the marriage had never been consummated. The young age of Lucrezia was pointed to as evidence that she was still a virgin. However, by this time she was 16 years of age, reasonably old enough to have a physical relationship with her husband. To make matters more complicated, Giovanni refused to admit that he had never lain with his young wife. So, Alexander leaned on the Sforza family to get Giovanni to cooperate. The Pope asked Giovanni's uncle, a cardinal named Ascanio Sforza, to have a word in his nephew's ear in order to persuade him of the benefits, indeed the inevitability, of agreeing to the annulment. Still, Giovanni refused. Perhaps it was a matter of Italian masculine pride, or perhaps Giovanni was trying to leverage his position to get a more generous settlement from the Pope 
who eventually offered him the full value of Lucrezia's very generous dowry in an effort to make him go away. But Giovanni continued to be intransigent. Moreover, he accused Alexander of committing incest with his daughter. Better watch out there, Giovanni. You're playing with fire, my lad. There is a rumour that the Pope told his son, Cesare, to arrange for Giovanni to be assassinated. A rumour that, quite frankly, I'm inclined to believe. However, Lucrezia is reputed to have gotten wind of this and told her husband that he'd better watch out, prompting him to flee Rome, disguised as a beggar. If this is true, then it indicates that Lucrezia was either quite fond of Giovanni, or, at the very least, she took pity on him. Such behaviour, full of compassion, not malice, is of course completely at odds with the vicious rumours that sought to paint Lucrezia as an accomplice in the crimes committed by the male members of her family. Allies of Giovanni Sforza pushed a claim that Lucrezia was pregnant, which, if true, would have made it pretty difficult for the Pope to claim that she was still a virgin. Was this claim merely a desperate bid to uphold the marriage? Maybe, but there are signs that Lucrezia really was pregnant prior to the annulment. She is known to have retreated to a convent in the summer of 1497 to await the outcome of the annulment process, which wasn't finalised until December of that year. Naturally, there were suspicions that her retreat from Rome was necessary in order to hide her pregnancy. If this rumour was true, then, we must ask, did the child belong to Giovanni? I think not. Lucrezia is alleged to have had an affair with her father's chamberlain, a man known as Perotto. Perhaps the best indication that Perotto might actually have had an affair with Lucrezia is the fact that in February 1498, his body was pulled from the Tiber River. Also discovered was the body of a maid, someone who might very well have had knowledge of whether or not Lucrezia was with child. But even if this story is true, there's really no reason to think that Lucrezia was behind these murders. Knocking people off and dumping their bodies in the Tiber seems to have been Cesare's speciality. In March of that year, an ambassador to the Vatican reported that Lucrezia had given birth in the convent. Of course, the papal household rejected all such claims as scurrilous rumours. However, a child was born into the Borgia family that year. Was Lucrezia the mother? In which case, can we speculate that the father was either her ex-husband, Giovanni, her alleged lover, Perotto, or even, as has been darkly alleged, the Pope himself? Or was the child simply another one of the many bastard children of Alexander or Cesare, with the mother simply being some unknown Roman woman? The Pope issued two contradictory decrees, one saying that the boy belonged to Cesare, and the next declaring that it was his. Perhaps, but the historical consensus these days is that this was Lucrezia's child and that the father was the unfortunate Perotto. Whoever the father or mother was, 
the boy grew up in the Vatican and was given the name Giovanni. We'll hear more about him later. In the end, the Pope got what he wanted. Turning the proverbial thumbscrews, Alexander persuaded the Sforza family to inform Giovanni in no uncertain terms that if he continued to stand in the way of the annulment, then he would be left, unprotected, to the tender mercies of the Borgias. Quite wisely, at this point Giovanni acceded to Alexander's demands. In what must have been an excruciatingly embarrassing moment, he signed a document saying that not only had he never made love to his wife, but that, moreover, he was impotent. Ouch! And so the path was cleared for Alexander to give his unsullied daughter in marriage to Alfonso of Aragon. As we heard last week, that marriage didn't work out either, likewise falling victim to the shifting alliances within the Italian wars. The Pope needed to ally the papal army with the French, at the expense of the bond between the papacy and the royal house of Aragon. Therefore, the marriage between Lucrezia and Alfonso was no longer politically useful. Unfortunately, this time round Alexander couldn't claim that his daughter was still a virgin. Lucrezia was pregnant with Alfonso's child. Therefore, there was only one other option to end the marriage. Poor Alfonso had to be done away with. As we heard last week, Alfonso fled Rome, perhaps having been warned by Lucrezia. He wrote to his wife, urging her to leave the Vatican and join him in Naples. However, Cesare got wind of this and then used Lucrezia to lure her husband back to Rome. Alfonso may have been glad to return in order to welcome his child, a son, into the world. The boy was named Rodrigo, after the Pope. Inevitably, before long Alfonso was murdered probably by an assassin named Micheletto Corella, an associate of Cesare. Lucrezia and Alfonso seem to have genuinely loved each other, and this tragic turn of events must have been a bitter blow. A widow at the age of just twenty, Lucrezia was now on the market once more. Next on the roster was another Alfonso, this time Alfonso, Duke of Ferrara who was an ally of the French king, with whom Alexander and Cesare were also aligned. It seems that Lucrezia herself wanted to get away from Rome and all the deadly intrigues going on there, hoping that life in Ferrara would be better, or at least simpler. She loved her family, of that there can be little doubt, but who could blame her for wanting to get out from the shadow of the Pope? and away from her brother's conspiracies. Sadly for Lucrezia, she had to leave behind little Rodrigo in order to travel to Ferrara and her new husband in 1502. This was undoubtedly extremely painful to her. She sent him gifts and letters, and she tried unsuccessfully to have him brought to Ferrara. Appallingly, Lucrezia would never see her son again. Instead, Rodrigo was raised by the family of Alfonso of Aragon. Her third marriage was not, it seems, an especially close one, though she did have eight children with the Duke, 
From surviving letters, Lucrezia is known to have had at least two very deep relationships with men other than her husband during her years in Ferrara. Though the letters are passionate, I think we should note that it is not clear if these were tokens of what might be called courtly romance, or if they were expressions of physical love affairs. As an aside, while travelling through Italy in 1816, the English poet Lord Byron came across some of the letters written between Lucrezia and the Italian poet Pietro Bembo, preserved in the library in Milan. The letters, Byron wrote, are so beautiful that I have done nothing but pore over them. It makes one wretched not to have been born sooner to have at least seen her, he bemoaned. In 1503, Pope Alexander VI died. The downfall of Lucrezia's powerful brother, Cesare, soon followed. The passing of her father and the scuppering of the dynastic fortunes of her clan might have meant the end of her days as the Duchess of Ferrara. However, Lucrezia was an exceptionally gifted woman and, despite the sudden loss of value of the Borgia name, she continued and thrived in her new domain. She was not mere marriage fodder, which was the role given to so many royal and noble women at this time. Rather, she was a woman of guts and substance. No doubt aided by her good education, she proved herself to be a capable administrator within the Vatican, and then she showed her mettle as the First Lady of Ferrara. An accomplished Renaissance Duchess, Lucrezia was a patroness of the arts and religious institutions. She even arranged to have Giovanni, the mystery child born in Rome during the time that her first marriage was being annulled, brought to live near her. Perhaps this is a sign that he really was her son. So, not a poisoner extraordinaire, nor a ruthless sexpot schemer, but a woman who, buffeted by the demands of her family and faced with personal tragedies, emerged as a respected noblewoman who dared to be passionate and intelligent and loyal in an age when the cruelty of men was all too apparent. Thanks to the great job done by Assassinations Podcast, we've had an overview of the rise and fall of Cesare Borgia, as well as some of the naughty things he did during that time. We also got a peek at the life and loves of Lucrezia Borgia, his sister. Now, as we move to the close of the Borgia family story, we'll take a closer look at these events. Let's first of all very quickly set the dramatis personae, the characters who will play out our tragedy. We have Rodrigo Borgia, Pope Alexander VI, his eldest son, Cardinal Cesare Borgia, his second son, Giovanni, his daughter, Lucrezia, and his youngest son, Goffredo. At the point we are at, Lucrezia is married to Giovanni Sforza, Duke of Pesaro, and a member of the powerful Sforza family of Milan. Cesare is a cardinal who tends to enjoy the wife of his younger brother, Goffredo, Sancha, as well as other ladies. She is the illegitimate daughter of the King of Naples. 
Giovanni Borgia, the Pope's second son, and his favourite, as we heard in Assassinations podcast, has just been murdered, most likely by Cesare himself. He has left a widow, Maria Enriquez, who was one of the few to openly accuse Cesare of the murder. Pope Alexander was devastated by the death of his favourite, and for a time he played with the idea of repenting his ways and concentrating on reforming the church. But that silly idea was just in passing, and he very soon concentrated the efforts he had put into creating a dynasty with Giovanni onto Cesare. It is said that from this point on, the balance of power shifted, with Cesare calling the shots more and more, and his father simply backing him up. The Pope, for his plans, first looked towards Naples, but he didn't have much luck there for Cesare. He did, however, get a bite when he dangled his daughter Lucrezia as bait and was able to arrange a marriage between her and another of the King of Naples' illegitimate children, Alfonso, Duke of Bisceglie, a small town in the north of the Puglia region. This was the brother of Sancha, who was the wife of Goffredo and lover, among others, of Cesare. As we learn from the assassination section, he also met a nasty end. For the moment, Lucrezia had the inconvenient situation of already being married to Giovanni Sforza. There was a solution for that. You may remember that the Pope had insisted that due to Lucrezia's young age, the marriage not be consummated. There was no way of knowing if it had been consummated afterwards, but that was enough. And the Pope started to put pressure on Giovanni to sign a declaration that the marriage would be annulled because he was impotent. That must have been quite a blow for a man whose first wife had died giving birth to his child. He resisted the pressure a while, but when it seemed that his very life would be on the line, and his family members, Cardinal Ascanio Forza among them, abandoned him, he decided to accept public shame in exchange for keeping his life, and so Lucrezia was free to marry Alfonso. You could say that Giovanni got his revenge in a certain sense, for it was on this occasion that he launched an accusation which would haunt Lucrezia well past her own death and to modern day, that the Pope had wanted to keep Lucrezia to enjoy her himself. As we heard in the first part of this episode, over the centuries, and particularly in the 19th century with Hugo and Italian composer Donizetti, this slander was reiterated. Current scholars of Lucrezia believe that there was no incest either with her father or her brothers, who were rivals in love, but for Sancha, not Lucrezia. They were a very close and secretive family, often meeting behind closed doors and almost always speaking in Spanish, which also helped to spread the rumours. Anyway, Lucrezia was now free for a new marriage alliance. She was officially freed and declared a virgin in front of a commission on the 22nd of December 1497, which very accommodatingly allowed her to wear a loose-fitting dress to hide the fact that she was six months pregnant with the son of a certain Pedro Calderon, the Perotto we heard about in the first part of the episode 
who also ended up in the Tiber. Meanwhile, Cesare still needed sorting out. The opportunity came, as we have mentioned, from France. In 1498, King Charles VIII of France had died, leaving no direct heirs, so the throne had gone to Louis XII. The new king wished to divorce his current wife and to marry the widow of his cousin, but to do this, he needed papal approval. The Pope on his side had a son to sort out, and hey presto, Cesare, once he had quickly cast off his cardinal robes in his last consistorum on the 17th of August, was free to become the Duke of Valentinois. He also married a French noblewoman, Charlotte of Albret, who had ties to both the French royal family and the King of Navarre. So, with the Pope and the King of France scratching each other's backs, it made it all the more easier when the new French king decided he would not only enforce his claim to the Kingdom of Naples, but also to the Duchy of Milan, which he could claim as a descendant of the Visconti family who had once ruled the city. For their part, the Pope and Cesare saw the descending French army as an opportunity to carve out a domain for Cesare in the Romagna area, to the northeast of Italy, where the peninsula starts to thin out. The area was under papal authority, so the rulers there were considered vassals, and it was enough for the Pope to declare that ten of them were not paying their tributes to justify an invasion by Cesare, supported by the French troops. Among these vassals, it's worth mentioning Caterina Sforza, Duchess of Forlì. It is in this campaign that she was supposed to have uttered one of the sentences that showed her iron will and defined her for the ages. Indeed, Cesare first made to take Bologna without a fight, then Imola with a short siege, and then he made his way to Forlì, where the siege lasted longer. The besiegers apparently had captured the children of Caterina and threatened to kill them if she did not submit. At this point, she was supposed to have lifted up her skirts and indicating her lady parts said, Do it then, if you want. Hang them all in front of me. Here I have what is needed to make more. Forli, in the end, also fell. This first part of the campaign was very successful for two main reasons. First of all, Cesare turned out to be a very good general, particularly putting artillery and engineering to good use. Then, the rulers of the area weren't that well loved, so there was not much desire on the part of the local populace to lay down their lives for an unpopular ruler. The progress could have continued, but at this point the French troops were called back to defend Milan from a Sforza counterattack. Cesare took advantage of the break to go and rule Rome through his father. It was at this point that the new cardinals we mentioned on the previous episode of this two-part series were made, bringing a nice load of cash into the Borgia coffers that could go and help finance the new war effort. He remained behind the scenes in this period, both figuratively and physically, since he was suffering from a flare-up of the syphilis that he had contracted in 1497 in Naples, 
When he did go out in public, he would wear the leather mask that was mentioned at the end of episode one. This only added to the air of mystery of the man who was a master at hiding his thoughts and feelings. Meanwhile, the French had managed to repel the Sforza counterattack on Milan and were free to offer Cesare their support again in exchange for his help in dismantling the Kingdom of Naples. It was at this point that Lucrezia's husband, Alfonso, son of the King of Naples, was in the way, and as we know, he was assassinated in the summer of 1500. Lucrezia, who had truly loved her husband, was devastated, crying uncontrollably for days. It was probably at this point that she decided that her future lay away from Rome and the dark shadow of her father and brother. She continued to be very close to her family, believing the version according to which Alfonso had been involved in a plot to assassinate the Borgias. But from then on, she would make every effort to distance herself. So now Cesare could see clearly now the rain was gone. He could see all the obstacles in his way, and it was going to be a bright sunshiny day for him, he hoped. To renew his military campaign, he took on perhaps the greatest artillery expert in Italy at the time, Vitellozzo Vitelli. In the list of imaginative names, this was a pretty good one. Vitello is a bullock, as in a young bull, and the ozzo at the end of any word is used to express a bigger version of it. So his name would have sounded something like Big Bullock Bullocks. Anyway, Big Bullock was one of the two greatest artillery experts in Italy, the other being another Alfonso, son of Ercole, Duke of Ferrara, who will soon come into our story. The next city to fall under Cesare's control was Pesaro, and the Duke, Giovanni Sforza, had to flee. He must have really loved the Borgias by this point. Then Fano and Cesena soon fell. Cesena, on the Adriatic coast, became the capital of Cesare's growing dominion. We heard in the last episode how Astore Manfredi, Duke of Faenza, was well loved and that city resisted longer before it fell and the very young duke met his untimely end. Towards the northern part of Cesare's new dominion, only Venice and Ferrara were in the way of further expansion. Ferrara at the time, under the Dukes of Este, was one of the most important centres of the Italian Renaissance. Cesare sought a union between his sister Lucrezia and Alfonso d'Este, son of Duke Ercole. The Este were not too keen on the matchup, seeing Lucrezia's bad news. But the French put in a good word, and Lucrezia herself kept up a good correspondence, and in the end, the match was made. Pope Alexander was heartbroken to see his beloved daughter leave. He told her that the distance would not diminish the care he had for her, indeed, it would increase, and she would have everything she wanted and needed. Lucrezia thanked him, but also said she hoped she would not need anything. She left the palace. The Pope ran to the window to see her one last time and called out as she left. Father and daughter would not see each other again. Cesare, meanwhile, continued to consolidate his domain. 
Starting in 1502, he was joined, as we have heard last time, by a certain Leonardo da Vinci as his engineer. And later, after he had menacingly approached Florence, he created an agreement with that city, in which they hired him for 30,000 ducats a year, and sent a representative to follow him, a young man in his early 30s by the name of Niccolò Machiavelli. Cesare actually seemed to be a good ruler, managing to maintain strict control over his troops, who admired him. He was able to clear the roads of bandits, and since he was bankrolled by the Vatican, he was able to be generous and keep taxes low. He also managed to add Urbino to his holdings by rather sneaky means. He asked the duke there, Guidobaldo, to send troops to help him, and then, when the city was almost unguarded, attacked and took it. Things were looking pretty good. Obviously, it could not last. Trouble started as Cesare's expansion started to threaten the possessions of important families who were tied to some of his captains. Four of them, including Vitellozzo Vitelli, rebelled. The rebellion didn't last long due to diverse interests among the rebels, and soon enough they were trying to win back the favour of Cesare by taking Senigallia for him, a city on the Adriatic coast. Most likely, neither the rebels nor Cesare were under any illusion that the new peace could last. When Cesare arrived in the newly conquered city, he told his captains to send their troops outside the walls. Once there, under his control, as you know, he had them killed. Two of the rebels, two Orsini brothers, had a family member who was a cardinal, so they survived a bit longer. Long enough for Pope Alexander to arrest said cardinal on trumped-up charges, and then the two could be killed. Cesare was now in political and military control again. However, if there was one thing he could not control, it was nature. In the summer of 1503, Cesare was in Rome. On the 11th of August of that year, Alexander was celebrating his 11th year as Pope. Despite the festive occasion, he was not in a good mood. The next day revealed the reason why. Both Alexander and Cesare took to their beds with high fever. On the 18th, Rodrigo Borgia, Pope Alexander VI, died. Cesare had obviously been prepared for his father's death, but he had never imagined that he would be incapacitated when it happened. The greatest risk now was that the arch-enemy of the Borgias, Cardinal Giuliano della Rovere, would become Pope. This danger seemed to have been averted when another Piccolomini, Francesco, was made Pius III. Unfortunately for Cesare's plans, Pius was elected on the 22nd of September, had his ceremony on the 8th of October, fell ill on the 13th and died on the 18th. This time around, Cesare had to give in and his cardinals supported De La Rovere at the next conclave and he became Pope Julius II. Things might have actually worked between the two men. 
The Pope would have been quite happy to have Cesare as a buffer between the Papal States and Venice. But, as we have seen, for Cesare Borgia there was no middle ground. It was all or nothing. The Pope soon turned against him, and he was captured as he tried to leave Ostia, and held prisoner until he revealed the codes to his last castles, where his captains, loyal to the end, resisted. It was in this period, too, that, for the first time, Cesare showed some emotion, breaking down in desperation, much to the disgust of Machiavelli. Once his lands were in the Pope's hands, Cesare was released and sought refuge in Naples. There, once again, he took up with Sancha and was happy for a time, even nursing hopes of rebuilding an army to take back what he had lost. It was not to be. He was shipped off to be a captive in Valencia, back to where the first Borgia had left for Italy 72 years earlier. His captivity was not the end of his story, he managed a daring escape and had to live off the land crossing enemy territory, greatly adding to his legend. He made his way to Navarre and his relations and ended up being employed by the king of Navarre as a military leader. He died fighting near Navarre on the 11th of March, 1507. Apparently, he had rushed into a group of foes on his own and witnesses did not understand why such an experienced commander would put his life at risk in such a way. Perhaps Cesare Borgia had decided to go out on his own terms. He was 31 years old. Lucrezia, who had meanwhile become the Duchess in her own right after the death of her father-in-law, Ercole d'Este, took the news with deep sadness but maintained her composure as she had done for the death of her father. She lived on until 1519, greatly loved by the people of Ferrara and striving to distance Lucrezia, Duchess of Ferrara, from Lucrezia Borgia of Rome. As we record this, it is the 500th anniversary of her death. The name Borgia did not disappear. The name survived in Spain until about the 19th century and they even gave a saint to the church, St. Francis Borgia. Over the years, much has been written about the Borgias, and more recently films, a television series, and even comics have been made. There is a lot of debate about their reputation. Were they just men and women of their time, or were they particularly corrupt, ruthless, cruel, and degenerate? Whatever you may think, one cannot deny that the Borgias are the stuff of legend. Well, I hope you enjoyed that crossover episode. I was pleased and honoured to work with Neil Cooper and the team at Assassinations Podcast, whom I thank for this experience. I also would like to thank you, my dear listeners, for listening. At this point, I usually thank my Patreon supporters, but in this crossover section, I've decided to use the time to thank my PayPal supporters. So, once again, I would like to thank Ron D, Brenda W, Emily D, John K, William K, Ignacio P, Marco M, and Teresa C. 
With regard to Patreon instead, if you head over there, you can hear a wrap-up chat between me and Neil about the Borgias and our projects and ideas for the future. If you aren't already a listener of Assassinations Podcast, then rush over immediately to assassinationspodcast.com or look them up wherever you get your podcast. Once again, thanks to everyone for listening. And until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.